You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good. I'm, I'm excited to preach. We have a real uh, doozy of a passage that we're going to be looking at. Our gospel reading of the week comes out of Matthew 22. We got our work cut out for us. A lot, a lot that we're going to have to dig into. So you're going to have to put on your thinking caps with me uh, this morning. But I know I have a smart, intelligent congregation here. So you're going to be able to take everything I'm throwing out at you today. Uh, the title of the sermon is The Invitation. Um, I want to do something different than I did last night. I actually want us to read. We're just going to read through the whole parable once. I want to have the whole parable kind of fresh in our minds before we start digging into it. So we'll read it, we'll pause and pray, and then we'll start uh, kind of breaking it down. So let's look at Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. Uh, We'll read all the way through verse 14. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves. I've all been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they had found, both good and bad, So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here's the last verse. For many are called, but few are Chosen. Remember that line. That's the punchline of the parable. Few are chosen. Many are called. Few are chosen. Let's pray. So, Lord, as we dig into your word today, um, we bring our entire self to this moment, not just our intellect, but every part of us, every pattern of thinking, every pattern of behavior, the very core of our being, our hearts, as best we know how, we humbly lay that before you. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, to speak into our lives. Whatever we need this day, give us today our daily bread. And may your word find good soil and take root, sprout, and spring up and bear fruit for the kingdom that our lives will have eternal significance for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and dig right in let's look at the first three verses it says once more jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son 
he sent his slaves. Now that word slaves can also be translated servants. It's the same word, doulas. Slaves, servants, same thing. But he sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they wouldn't come. So here we have a king. His son's getting married. He's going to throw a big wedding at his palace. Now, Jewish, ancient Jewish weddings did not last less than an hour like ours do. They went on actually for days. This was a week-long event. You can think of it like that. So all of Jewish community life really centered around these kinds of events, like weddings. You planned your life around these community events. So this is a big deal. There's a lot to prepare. It's going to take a lot of time. So the way that this would work is as the king is looking to invite people to the wedding banquet, you would invite people who fit your social strata people who kind of represent your walk of life. So a king is obviously going to want to invite other kings, other forms of nobility, aristocrats, dignitaries, allies. He, he invites those kinds of people to his son's wedding. You would send out the invitation, and then later on, when the banquet's ready, then you would send out word a second time to let them know, all right, everything's ready, you've accepted the invitation, now it's time to come. So here you have a king who has, invite his, he has invited his chosen people, all right? So later on, everybody's going to get called, but these are the chosen invitees. And he's already sent his servants out to invite them. Evidently, they've accepted the invitation, but later on when he sends his servants the second time to let them know everything's ready, now come on, they refuse to come which is really something that would never happen. I can even see Jesus' audience kind of snickering, like, yeah, like that would ever happen, because it would never happen. It's absurd. But that's the point of the parable. It's, it's, trying, to, uh, it's trying to drive at a certain point that we're going to get to in just a moment. So they've rejected the moment to come. They've, in, they've received the invitation. They accepted the invitation. But when it's actually time to go to the wedding banquet, they refuse. The chosen few refuse verses four through six again the king sent other slaves saying tell those who have been invited look i have prepared my dinner my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready come to the wedding banquet so now we have a king doing what no king would ever do and that is beg he's pleading with these chosen few please come i need you here but look at what happens in verse five but they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. So now this is getting astronomically more absurd. Not only have these people disrespected a king, and they already, they already accepted the invitation, but they refused to come the first time. Now when he begs and pleads, not only do they refuse a second time, but now they're mocking him. And some of them even take his servants and mistreat them and even put them to death. Like, why would you do that? What makes you even think you would get away with that in the first place? Now, remember, this is important. Just like our parable last week, every scholar I read about this, they agree that this is a parable. The backdrop of this parable is God's history of his relationship with ancient Israel. Ancient Israel were, were his chosen people. 
He invited them to come and sit at his table. You're going to be my people through whom I'm going to reach the whole world. You've made a covenant with me. You've accepted the invitation to be my covenant people. And he sent servant after servant, prophet after prophet after prophet to remind Israel, look, you've accepted his invitation. You're God's people. Now let's be faithful to our identity as God's people. Come to this banquet and enjoy the life that your God wants to give you as his chosen people. And yet, these prophets routinely are ignored. These prophets are rejected. And the leadership of ancient Israel even takes to mocking these prophets, uh, mistreating them, and sometimes even killing them, quite literally. Now let's look at what happens to these folks in the parable. Verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his troops destroyed those murderers and burned their city so now all of a sudden this humble gracious king turns into an enraged killing machine which is exactly how their kings would operate in real life people like Herod the Great and his dynasty his whole family Pontius Pilate uh, these were rather vicious ruthless capricious rulers authoritarian dictators and when they didn't get their way uh, we know history tells us they would become quite violent so this king is is behaving in a way that normal kings would would behave but there's a point here that Jesus is wanting to stress and that is in the context of our relationship with God there are dire consequences to rejecting God's offer now remember this whole thing is about God's historical relationship with ancient Israel and history tells us 40 years later after Jesus's life and ministry on earth 40 years later the Romans march upon Jerusalem surround the city and besiege it for several months they won't let anybody out they won't let anybody come in so eventually the food supply runs out people start starving they start resorting to the most extreme measures it gets really ugly even disease and those things begin to outbreak within the city walls of Jerusalem all, all of history tells us this that eventually the Romans after after this long period of, of besiegement they break down the walls of the city massacre tens of thousands of people anyone who managed to escape and survive they would be permanently exiled from the city of Jerusalem and then they raise the temple and burn Jerusalem to the ground, just like the king does in this parable. He burns their, the Romans burn the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now Jesus, 40 years earlier, he foretold all of this. He prophesied all of this in Luke 21, Matthew 24, Luke 19, uh, Mark 13. All over the place, he he's warning them, this is coming. If you don't turn, this whole city is going to become a fiery Gehenna. And he identifies it with judgment language. This is a judgment of God. But it's important we understand God doesn't bring about this judgment by being enraged like this earthly king did. In fact, in Luke 19, when it talks about Jesus riding into Jerusalem and the whole city, this panoramic view, he sees the city and he begins to foretell these events that will happen in 70 AD about this city being raised to the ground. Luke tells us he's weeping. In fact, the, the Greek word can be even translated wailing, which really expresses the, the heart of God 
for these people. This is not what God wants. It crushes them. It breaks his heart. He, he's grieved about all of this that's going to come upon them. And so when the Romans come and destroy Jerusalem 40 years later, even though we identify this, it is true. It is a judgment of God. This is not the case where God is being vindictive and like, yeah, I finally was able to get even with these people. No, it's, it's more like a loving parent when you have a teenager or a young adult who is steeped in addiction and you've done everything, man. You have, you have worked with them for years and years and you've, you've done everything you know how to do. You, you've paid for rehab. You've paid for counseling. You, you've tried every possible solution and nothing's working. There comes a point where you, you just throw your hands up. There's nothing more I can do. I, if, I, if I go any further, I'm going to become an enabler. And that reaches a point where, where God says, there's, there's nothing more I can do, and he lifts his hands. And so the way he brings this judgment about, it's not by sending in troops like this earthly king did. It's not like God had to go to Rome and say, hey, Rome, go sick them. No, Rome already wanted to do that. I mean, for decades, the hatred between Rome and the Jewish people had been simmering, and by the middle of the first century, it reaches a boiling point. And so all God does in that judgment is all he ever does in judgment. It's what he does on the cross. He gives them their wish. He says, if you want to push me away, there's going to come a point I'm going to let you push me away, and I'm, I'm going to withdraw. And that's why God, uh, that's why Jesus says uh, the house of God has become desolate. The house of God has become vacant because God eventually gives them their wish. He vacates the premises. I mean, you, you pushed him out of the premises century after century after century to the point of even taking God's own son and crucifying him outside uh, the city walls of Jerusalem. And so God vacates the premises, leaving Israel vulnerable, and Rome comes and does what it already wants to do. And yet, this is a judgment of God. So we need to see that. We need to see the point Jesus wants to make, even as we make a distinction here between the king, the king's behavior, and God's behavior. The, the reality is there are dire consequences to rejecting God's offer. Everybody with me so far? All right, so now act two of the parable. Let's begin uh, looking at verse eight. This, now the parable is kind of, this is like the B side. Then the king said to the servants, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Let's pause there. What's going on with this poor guy who's not wearing a wedding robe and he gets singled out? Well, there's some stuff you got to know here historically. First of all, in ancient Jewish culture, they placed a premium on festivities, whether it was religious festivities or kind of personal events like weddings and things like that. Like I said a moment ago, all of Jewish community life was built around these huge community events and it was extremely important that when you attend one of these types of events that you wear the right kind of attire it'd be like showing up at the oscars wearing flip-flops and cargo shorts or jean shorts even worse you know <laughs> no man like how you and, and, and this was like so we have a little bit of that in our culture you know we have certain events you want to dress up for certain events even weddings you want to dress up for weddings well, in ancient Jewish culture, this was t 
taken to the nth degree. You know, because the attire you wear for this event says something about how highly you regard the event. Every Jewish person would have had some type of garments, even the poorest of folks. They would, have, they would have at least one special garment that they would set aside and they would wear for these kinds of occasions. And so here you have a guy who shows up at the wedding. He's just wearing ordinary drab clothing. And it's not because he doesn't have a special garment. It's just because he didn't bother to go back and change. Because when the king confronts him, notice he's speechless. He doesn't have an excuse. If you got an excuse, this would be the time to give it. So it's important you see that this man is doing this on purpose. He's making an intentional statement by showing up to the king's son's wedding wearing his ordinary dirty clothes. I mean, if there's ever an event where you want to dress your best, it's when you as a peasant get invited to a royal wedding at the king's palace because that never happens. And yet this guy shows up in these rags. What he's saying is, here's what I think about your stupid wedding. That's what he's saying. He doesn't like the king, and he's showing it by the attire that he's wearing. The attire is reflecting the character of his heart towards the king. So let's look at what happens to him in verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of these terms you're seeing right there, like gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, these were very common terms in apocalyptic literature, and it always connoted someone who is in fear or sorrow about coming judgment. They see judgment coming, so they are, they are weeping, they are gnashing their teeth in fear and sorrow, but they remain defiant, okay? Now let's look at the punchline. This is the last verse. This is what we want to kind of focus on here for a moment. For many are called, Jesus says, but few are chosen. Many are called, but anytime you're looking at a parable, you've got to pay attention. If there's a punchline, look at the punchline. The punchline is what the whole point's about. And that's why Jesus tells the whole story. He wants to drive this home. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Many are called, but few are chosen. What does this mean? I've already kind of hinted at it. And I'm going to get to that again in just a moment. But first, let me, let me say what it doesn't mean. Many people take this verse, many are called, but few are chosen. And they use it among many other verses, uh, to support a theological idea that, that's very prevalent. Uh, the idea that, yes, God invites everyone. God uh, wants everyone to hear the gospel. But in reality, God is already pre-selected before the foundation of the world. Who will accept and who won't accept? So in other words, to put it just in basic common terms, it's the idea that God has predestined who will go to heaven, who will go to hell, and this decision is already made and in stone before you're born. There's nothing you can do to change it. So he invites everybody, but in reality, he chooses who is going to get in. Now, whatever you happen to think about that theology, I'm kind of setting that to the side. That's not my topic. I do have a strong opinion about it, but that's not for, that's not for today. Um, what I will say, though, is whatever you happen to think about that idea, if you look at this verse in relation to the parable itself, you'll see that it can't possibly be referring to that because there's nothing like that going on in this parable. Uh, the king, even though he's a ruthless guy, he's not going any, meeny, miny, mo. No, the people who don't end up at the banquet, it's not because the king selected them out, they selected themselves out, right? Uh, this group who, who gets invited and the king begs them. 
He pleads with him, please come to my banquet. I want you to come to my banquet. But they chose to ignore it, to reject him, to mock him, and take his servants and mistreat them and kill them. That was all their decision. So they selected themselves out. Uh, Same thing with this guy who shows up wearing ordinary drab clothing because of his disrespect, his disdain for the king. That's his decision. He's pre-selecting himself out. So that, that's, that's not what that verse is talking about. Now, there may be other passages we could talk about, but that verse itself, it can't be referring to that idea if we're looking at it in relation to the parable. Understandest thou these things? So what is this verse talking about? Well, remember, this whole parable is about God's relationship with ancient Israel. Now, God ultimately calls everybody into his, he wants to call everybody, invite everybody into his kingdom. In fact, that word many, when it says many are called, you need to know in Semitic cultures, the word many is oftentimes used as a synonym for all. You'll see, for example, in Romans 5, Paul uses many and all interchangeably. The the word many there just expresses the great multitude of the all. So everybody's invited, everybody's called. But ancient Israel had a unique, they, they were chosen. They were God's chosen people. They were invited, especially, come to this banquet. Sit at my table. You're my people. And let's enjoy the life that I want to give you because I'm going to use you to reach the whole world. So he's pleading in this parable. Jesus is pleading with his contemporary audience. Listen, you are chosen. Many people are going to be called, but you've been chosen. So you, above all, come to this banquet. Change your garments. Get your garments straight. And come to this banquet, sit at the table, and enjoy what I want to give to you. So, with all of that said, what's our takeaway here? And I'm nearly done. Thank you for your patience today. We've worked through a lot of stuff. Now, what's the takeaway? What might God be speaking to us through this parable today? What this parable is saying to us is that it's not enough to accept the invitation and think that nothing else has to change. It's not enough to say, yeah, I'll go, and then not dress up for it. Or to put it in other words, it's not enough to say, uh, I believe in Jesus, and yet think that you can just go on living life as before, as if nothing about you is going to change. And I'm going to say it just very explicitly. What I'm saying is don't expect to sit at the banquet table unless you're willing to dress for it. And the dressing here, of course, is not referring to literal clothing, but to our attitudes and our behaviors. Don't think that you can be in a real relationship with Jesus and go on thinking and behaving as if you were before, as, if, as, as though nothing's changing and nothing needs to change. This is so important, especially for modern American Christians. This idea of cheap grace that I can just attend church, take communion, say a little prayer, sign a commitment card, and I'm good to go. I'm just going to coast in. Nothing about me has to change. You, you understand, that's like going to your wedding, saying I do, signing your marriage certificate, and then going on living as if you're still a single person, showing complete disrespect for the person you've committed to, centering your whole life around yourself, and having all kinds of relationships outside of the marriage. You're living as though the marriage isn't real. You're, you're living as though the marriage, all the marriage is, is just a certificate on your wall. But those of you in here who are married, you know that marriage is a whole lot more than having a certificate. In fact, the only thing that gives meaning to the certificate is the reality behind it. 
This one flesh relationship that God creates when you stand up here and you say, I do, and you commit yourself and you stick to it. And now your responsibility as a husband or a wife is to get all of your thought patterns, all your behavior patterns, all your attitudes, everything about you now needs to be aligned with this new reality that's been created. Now that I'm married, I'm going to live married. The, the, the reality has to be reflected in our lives. It's so, so, so important. So I'm going to, now that I've said I do, I'm going to put off this old garment of singleness. And I'm going I'm to put on this new garment called marriage. Does this make sense? Or are you just thinking really hard? I mean, hopefully those that are married are amening me right now. Like, now that I've said I do... I'm going to cut off those old attitudes and thought patterns and behaviors I had when I was a single person. And I'm going to put on a whole new set of behaviors and attitudes and thought patterns that reflect the fact that I am indeed married. So I'm going to live as a married person. That's what makes the marriage real. And it's the same thing with our relationship with Jesus. Look at this very important verse in John 17, verse 3. And, and this is not isolated. This is all over the theology of the New Testament, particularly in John's work. Look what he says. Father, this is Jesus speaking. Father, this is eternal life, that people know you. There's a sense of ongoing reality that people know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Pay attention to how the New Testament speaks of salvation. This is not a status. It's not a ticket to heaven. It's not an ID card in my wallet. Eternal life, salvation, is an ongoing, life-giving union that I continue in in Christ. It's a, just like marriage, it is a new reality that needs to define everything about me, and it's an ongoing way of life. That's what salvation is. It's a journey. It's an expedition. It's a life that you live. And that's got to change everything. You cannot be related to Jesus and think that you can go on living as though you're not related to Jesus. In fact, if you're not, if you're not, if you're going to live, if you're going to go on living as though you're not related to Jesus, you're not related to Jesus. So yeah, accept the invitation. I'll never forget when that happened for me. I was 13 at a service for teenagers and and there was a, a preacher from Canada, and we had a bunch of mime routines. It was really, you know, goofy. It reflected 90s-era youth culture. And I look back, and I'm like, oh, man, how did that reach me? But, but it did, man. I was 13, and, and the preacher gave an invitation to come, and I came forward. I knelt down right over here. There was like a wooden altar. I knelt down. I just weeped. And that night really changed the trajectory of my life because I accepted God's invitation that night, and it changed me. And from that point on, I knew I wanted to be a preacher, you know? So I laid aside my dreams of becoming quarterback of the New Orleans Saints, you know? It's a big sacrifice. I could be making millions of dollars right now. But I'm here preaching to you because of a night at 13 years old when I accepted the invitation. And hopefully you have an experience like that or at least a, a point in your life where you would say, yeah, man, that's when the trajectory changed, when I said yes to Jesus. But you see, here's what you got to understand. When you say yes to Jesus, when you have a moment like that, what you're doing is accepting the invitation. Now that you've accepted the, the invitation, let's change our garments and go to the banquet and sit at the table and enjoy the life he's called us to. That's the point of this parable. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4. I'm almost done. I already said that, but I'm really almost done. 
Paul says, you were taught to put away your former way of life. Make sure your former way of life is former. Your old self, corrupted and diluted by its lust, instead be renewed in the spirit of your minds and clothe yourselves with that new self created according to the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Paul's saying, get rid of that old garment. That old way of thinking, those old patterns of behavior, those old attitudes, those old grudges, put that away. And now, since you are in Christ, let's live that reality. Live as though you're in Christ by God's grace. Think like you're in Christ. Bring every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. Put on that new garment of Christ and get dressed because the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. That's why it says in Revelation 19, the bride is making herself ready. And that's what we're to be doing. Now, I'm preaching a very confrontative word today. I can't help it because that's the passage. But I do want to give you a little bit of grace. I want to take some pressure off of you because it's very easy when you preach a hard, confrontative word. It's very easy to stop there. And what ends up happening is people can oftentimes despair of their failures and they become self-condemning. And that actually can... uh, can result in someone who just gives up altogether. So I want to I understand, first of all, this whole process of putting off the old garment, putting on the new garment, this will take the rest of your life. This is a lifelong project. And the Holy Spirit isn't going to try to throw it all on you at once and say, let's get everything that's not right, right tonight. What the Holy Spirit's going to do is the same thing you do when you change garments. What do you do when you change garments? You start with one garment at a time. So the Holy Spirit's going to say, let's focus on your left sock today. <laughs> let's focus on your left sock at this season of your life. In other words, the Holy Spirit might say, you know what? Let's, let's kind of look at your attitude toward your spouse. Let's, there's a lot of things we've got to change, but let's start there. And let's just start with that left sock. Take off that old sock, put on the new sock. Or he might say, uh, this grudge you have toward your next door neighbor. Let's work on that one now. Let's, let's take the next few weeks. Let's work on that one. So, so understand, this is a lifelong journey, right? And there's grace for the journey. You're going to stumble. There are going to be times you're going to fall short. I want to normalize that. But what's important is that you're moving in that direction. You're moving in that trajectory and learning how to dress appropriately for this beautiful occasion that's coming up. And that's what this parable is all about. Amen? Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.